everybody. This is Dan Walker. Welcome to another edition of U.S. Law Radio. One of the most frequently litigated issues in the insurance industry is the additional insured and contractual indemnity provisions in the contract. Is the coverage you depend on really in place? U.S. Law member Rob Noble is a partner at the firm Traub, Lieberman, Strauss, and Shrewsbury in New York. He keeps a close watch on this issue and joins us now with an update from his perspective. Rob, great to have you here on U.S. Law Radio. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. All right, Rob, let's dig right in. Now, using construction as our example, when it comes to shifting the risk on a construction project, what should the parties to the contract and their insurers be focused on? Well, this this is something that both the parties to the contract and the insurance company are very focused on. Obviously, whenever there's any an accident on a construction project, in other contexts, but I'll use the construction project because that's where I see it the most frequently, the owner and the general contractor have hired subcontractors to do the real nuts and bolts, to really dig in and be responsible for the project. And it's expected that those parties and their insurers will take responsibility. So in order to do that, in order to ensure that that expectation is fulfilled, they put provisions in the contract, one of which is an insurance procurement provision, which translates into additional insured status at the end of the day. In other words, the owner and the general contractor want to be additional insureds on the subcontractor's insurance policies. The issue that I see, and this is not a new concept, by the way, this has been going on for years, and the insurance industry has issued what they call blanket additional insured endorsements over the years and modified the language over the years. And if you kind of laid them out, you'd see a trend. From the insurance company's point of view, they only wanted to cover vicarious liability. In other words, they issued a policy to their named insured subcontractor. They didn't know who this owner or general contractor was going to be down the road. So their extension of coverage to this unknown party was supposed to be limited to that party's vicarious liability based upon the acts of the subcontractor. But the way the endorsements were worded, the courts were not interpreting or applying it that way. So what ended up having was a situation where the owner or general contractor might have been at fault and the insurer for the subcontractor ended up covering that. And they tried to modify the language, the additional insured endorsement to in, in response to that so that their liability was limited. And recently, what we've seen is a new version of the additional insured endorsement. And just again, by way of background, what we used to see or what's out there is a version of the additional insured endorsement that extends coverage to any party who has a written contract with the named insured where the liability arises out of the named insured's operations. That was the language they used to use. What we're seeing more and more of now are endorsements that limit coverage for injuries caused by the acts or omissions of the named insured. And that's significantly different. Arising out of language is interpreted very broadly. The caused by is interpreted more narrowly. And then you add the words acts or omissions and you've introduced a negligence concept. So the best example I can think of is under the old arising out of language, you have a situation where the subcontractor's employee was injured on the job site. And they would sue the owner and the general contractor because they couldn't sue their employer based on the workers' compensation bar. And the owner and general contractor would then third party in or implead the subcontractor employer. And they try to shift liability to the subcontractor's insurer based upon the arising out of language. And the courts would say, yes, that's exactly how this works. Anytime that employer, that subcontractor employee is on the job site, they're there for the benefit of their employer. 
So it necessarily arises out of that employer's operations and liability would shift to the insurance company in the coverage context. So now we have this caused by acts or omissions, and it's not a lot of case law on it, but certainly the position that I'm seeing insurers take is, well, wait a minute, just because it was my insured's employee doesn't mean it was caused by my named insured. In fact, my named insured isn't even named in the main action. So they're denying coverage. They're saying, we're not going to defend. Let's see how the case shakes out at the end of the day, and then we'll decide. So I guess the moral of the story, if you will, is when parties are entering into that contract, they can't assume, as they may have in the past, that they're going to be covered under their subcontractor's insurance policy. They need to see that policy, and they need to know exactly what type of additional insured endorsement it has. And they should probably write in their contract and specify what type of endorsement they want to have. This additional insured endorsement is really kind of a living, breathing endorsement, isn't it? I would, I would say it's, it's evolving, and it's something the parties to the contract need to be aware of, and it's something that insurers, uh, the claims adjusters, who are the ones who are you know on the front lines of this and are tendering and receiving tenders, need to be aware of what others in their industry have in their policies. Okay, Rob. Well, other than the additional insured status, how can liability be shifted between parties to a contract? Well, the other main provision is the contractual indemnity provision. And the pitfall or the things to be aware of in New York, one of the main issues is the New York General Obligations Law, which prevents one party to a construction contract from indemnifying someone else for their own negligence. Um, but the plenty that's been written on that and spoken about that, and I don't want to belabor that point, I think what's more frequently overlooked with respect to contractual indemnity is on the insurance side of it, which is, you know, when you tender to, to another party under a contractual indemnity provision, you may be able to win, but what good is it if there's no money to collect at the end of the day, if that party that you're intending to or you're prosecuting your contractual indemnity claim against is judgment-proof? And what I've seen more and more frequently are policies issued to subcontractors that don't cover that contractual indemnity claim. The problem is you wouldn't know it unless you really dig down deep. And what I mean by that is general liability policies typically have something called a contractual liability exclusion. And that exclusion typically has an exception for something called insured contracts, and that's a defined term. And the only way you know what an insured contract is and whether that exception to the exclusion applies is if you look in the definition section of the insurance policy. And typically, if you did look in that definition section, you would see contractual indemnity claims as one of the enumerated, quote-unquote, insured contract exceptions. Recently, however, a number of insurance companies have started changing the definition of insured contract to take out the contractual indemnity provision. So parties to a contract require that, that there be an insured contract coverage and blissful ignorance assume that there's going to be coverage for that claim, but they never actually bother to check. And one of the most common responses I hear is, well, I looked at the certificate of insurance. And frankly, the certificate of insurance really does not mean a whole lot. And it's a common but an unfortunate mistake that people make by relying too heavily on that. All a certificate of insurance is is evidence of insurance. It's not. If you want to know the answer to this question, you have to actually get the subcontractor's insurance policy and read it. Really? That seems like an awful lot of extra effort, Rob. I mean, if you can't believe a certificate of insurance, what can you believe? 
Well, that's the problem, you know, and, and, and the people in the industry will frequently tell me, say, look, I'm, I'm running a business here. I don't have time to start getting insurance policies and reading them. I need to rely on a piece of paper, you know, a single piece of paper. That's, that's the whole point of the certificate. And I can't dispute it, but, you know, maybe some responsibility should be shifted over to the broker then, because why did they issue it if it doesn't mean anything? It's a problem in the industry. Well, forewarned is forearmed, I guess. So, Rob, is it preferable then for a party to shift their liability as an additional insured or based on a contractual indemnification provision? You know, I hate to sound like a lawyer, but it really depends. There are pros and cons to each, and it kind of depends on the factual scenario. For example, if it's an excess exposure case where the subcontractor's primary insurance won't be sufficient to cover the loss, I would think that it's preferable to try to shift your risk through a contractual indemnity as opposed to additional insured because as an additional insured, you run into these priority of coverage issues. You are the owner general contractor. You have your own insurance. You've just tendered to the subcontractor who has primary and excess insurance. And the primary insurer for the sub may say, yes, I will cover you as an additional insured. But the excess insurer will say, yeah, I'll cover you as well after all available insurance is exhausted. And that includes your insurance owner and general contractor as well. And you don't want that. You don't want your insurance to have to pay. And certainly your insurers don't want to pay. They want to shift what I would describe as vertically up the subcontractor's tower of coverage. So in that instance, contractual indemnity is preferable. However, if the owner general contractor have some independent negligence and they can't be indemnified for their own negligence under New York law in a construction project context, then they may prefer to be additional insureds. The problem with this whole thing is that very often the parties will tender under both theories. They'll write their letter. You know, the counsel for the owner general contractor will write to the subcontractor and the subcontractor's insurers and say, I hereby tender my defense and indemnity to you under theories of additional insured status, and they'll quote the relevant language, and contractual indemnity, and they'll quote that provision in the contract. And their tender may even be accepted, but nobody bothers to identify which basis until they get to the mediation table. <laughs> and at that point, you're going to get run into this dispute as to which is preferable, which is more beneficial, and, and obviously you're going to have competing interests at that point. I think it's much better to determine early on under which basis you want your risk to be shifted. You know, something tells me, Rob, that you spend a lot of time explaining to clients that you woulda, shoulda, coulda. Well, that's true. That's true. And, you know, the interesting thing with that is we don't write the contracts typically. As litigators or as coverage counsel, we're in a position of coming in after the fact. So we get to Monday morning quarterback a little bit. I think it would be an interesting exercise if we got together with the contract drafters or if we were consulted in the drafting phase. Maybe we could help address some of these issues. Well, Rob, listen, how do you want to wrap things up for us? What's your closing message? Uh, well, I don't know if I have a, a real message. I think, you know, I'd like to identify some of the key issues that come up constantly. And there are a million variations on these scenarios that come up, and it's impossible to address them all. But if I had to kind of have a, a takeaway from this, I would say be aware when you're tendering or as early as you can, be aware of what type of additional insured endorsement is in your policy, your own policy for starters, and in the policy of the party you're contracting with. Be aware of whether your subcontractor, if you're an owner or a general contractor, or again, if even, even your own policy, what does it mean when they say you have an insured contract in your policy? How is that defined? Is there an endorsement that changes it? I mean, ask your broker these questions if you're the insured. And as far as, you know, which is preferable, I would say, again, it depends, but it's something that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later. 
Rob Noble, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us here on U.S. Law Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. That is it, folks. We're out of time. U.S. Law Radio is produced by Roger Yaffe. Please send along your comments and show ideas his way. This edition of U.S. Law Radio has been brought to you by SEA Limited, forensic engineering and origin cause experts working nationwide since 1970. And by Ringler Associates. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided injured parties and their attorneys with the finest structured settlement services. This is Dan Walker. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you again next time for another fresh edition of U.S. Law Radio.